If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are up to chapter 6. We're about halfway through the book. Whether you're visiting with us this morning or whether you've, you've been here for 20 years or so, uh, if, as we're walking through things, uh, the Lord is prompting you in your spirit to pray. I would encourage you to do that immediately. But if you would, in addition to that, like to pray as soon as we're done, um, either during that final song or afterwards, we'll be over here in this area, and we would be honored to pray with you as the Lord ministers to you by His Spirit. Let's begin this morning by then asking the Lord to help us. Father, you are so good. In fact, ultimately, you are the only being that is truly good. And so as we think through how to process the things that are good in this life, would you lead us by your Spirit so that, so that our own hearts might be revealed and so that the surpassing glory of Jesus would be revealed, so that we might have a right perspective on things that are good. So lead us to that end, I pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask it. Amen. Who knows what is good? The title of our message this morning is drawn from the last verse of our passage where the preacher is pressing us to think deeply about his observations. He asks, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? The question itself conveys both longing and a, and a kind of lament. In one sense, the question is designed to be rhetorical, but in another sense, it's absolutely intentional. It is the question the preacher asks to get us to think hard about how we should view the good things in this world. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Understanding what is truly good for us in this life is not easy. Even when we consider some things that that many people believe to be universally good. Consider the famous words from our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are all good, God-given gifts. As Americans, we tend to view them as rights. 
But even, even with these ideals, what happens when, when my liberty or my pursuit of happiness conflicts with yours? Then what? Or much more importantly, what happens when these or, or other good things are in fact not given by God? What happens when God takes away these good things or perhaps other good things like a spouse or a child or a job or even your honor? Then what? Ecclesiastes 6 is both painful and powerful. But perhaps above all, it is hopeful because it is an opportunity to think freshly about what is truly good in this life and to rejoice in the God who alone is ultimately good. Our passage this morning from God's Word is Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So, beloved, Brothers and sisters, hear the word of our gracious and glorious God. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go To the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man 
what will be after him under the sun. Lord, would you lead us now by your spirit? Give us eyes to see that which you want us to see about ourselves and about this world and about you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Patrick taught us that we should thoroughly enjoy God's good gifts for the glory of God. Now this week, Solomon essentially presses us a little bit further by asking us to consider a man who has everything and yet can't or won't or doesn't enjoy it. Solomon is pushing us deeper into the dilemma that he has been describing really since the beginning of the book. This mysterious enigma is that there is no way to engineer your life to ensure the preferred outcome you desire. There is no way to guarantee satisfaction. Have you ever tried to organize something so meticulously because you wanted it to work out a certain way? And based on some of your smirks, you may live that way on a daily basis. I'm not sure. (laughs) I did this with our honeymoon. (laughs) I I wanted to handle all of the details to make it a great week because of after all of the busyness of our wedding, I wanted, I wanted Christy to just be able to relax and enjoy time together. So airline tickets to St. Thomas, check. A big check, actually. I st- <laughs> still, tra- still traumatized by it. Uh, a limo to the airport, check. The right resort, check. Good restaurants, check. Fourth of July fireworks over the bay, awesome, check. The only problem was, Christy got sick. That wasn't part of my plan that I had so meticulously put together. Now, she was a trooper, and and we we had a great time. But the point is that even the perfect plan, on the most perfect week of your life, in the perfect place, with the perfect girl, doesn't guarantee that everything will work out perfectly. The basic principle in play in verses 1 through 9 is that good things make great gifts, but bad gods. Good things make great gifts, which is why we should enjoy them but they make terrible gods. The reason is because complete satisfaction is so elusive. Now look what the preacher says in verses 1 through 2. Now perhaps Solomon here is speaking somewhat 
autobiographically, but the remarkable thing about the guy he describes in his story is that the dude was actually able to obtain everything that his heart desired. What an amazing statement. The problem is that it is no guarantee that you will be able to enjoy everything that you have acquired. I think the key phrase for our passage is found in verse 2. God does not give the man power to enjoy what he has worked so hard to accomplish. Rather, in this case, a, a stranger gets that privilege. Solomon looks at this, especially if it is autobiographical, and that's just vanity to him. In fact, his words are stronger. That's a grievous evil from his perspective. But let's think about this carefully as we, as we press into the idea. To the preacher, the inability to enjoy the gifts that he has worked so hard to acquire seems unjust to him. It seems pointless. We can certainly understand why he might feel this way. But the reality of the situation is that if God is the one who is withholding power for the man to enjoy his wealth, possessions, and honor, then though it may be perplexing, it can't be evil. at least in the way that we typically think about it. The deeper question that wisdom literature, and and Ecclesiastes in particular, the deeper question it is pleading with us to think about is why would God orchestrate the world in such a way after the fall that it so often leads us feeling disappointed or frustrated or vulnerable or even dependent on someone else. What's his purpose in that? As one woman recently wrote for Desiring God, she said, after decades of ministry, what is one piece of advice I wish I had received as a young woman? Answer, study the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has shown me the secret of enjoying life, even in the midst of trouble. In short, Ecclesiastes has made me a realist, and yet I'm happier than ever before. She continues, if you get the wisdom here while you're still young, it will prepare you for real life. It clears away false assumptions with which we sometimes read the rest of Scripture. But even if you find Ecclesiastes when you're older, it sure explains a lot. You learn that life didn't go sideways. It was always crooked. Chapter 1 and verse 15. Our problem is that we don't really believe life is an unhappy business, as the preacher says. We think if we work hard, we'll eventually succeed. We imagine suffering is short-term, 
Pain is the exception to the rule, and failure merely, uh, failure merely the prelude to victory. These illusions leave us blindsided by setbacks, devastated by failure and loss, bewildered by trials, confused by pain. We talk about having a bad day as if it should be one in a thousand. But Ecclesiastes helps us face the fact that we live and work in a sin-cursed world. It paints an unvarnished picture of real life, but its heavy shadows help you see the light of real joy. That's why the perspective of Ecclesiastes is so important. So then, back to our question... Why does God allow our lives to be filled with so many difficult things? I think the answer comes into focus as we, as we contemplate what is truly good. In Psalm 119, in verse 68, the psalmist states very succinctly, as he addresses God, you are good and do good. That's a a powerful and a, a tight psalm to remember in crisis. God, you are good and do good. Further, Jesus reminds us in Mark 10, when a young ruler addresses him as good teacher, Jesus replies, only God is ultimately good. Therefore, we can determine from these texts that only God is ultimately good and that God only does what is ultimately good. So, we can adjust our question slightly. Rather than asking, why would God allow this world to be so hard for us, we can more properly ask, what good purpose does our good God have for bringing about these difficult circumstances, even if some of the things that happen in our lives appear evil to us? In other words, what's our good God doing when bad things happen to us? especially for those of us who are getting to a place in life where we're able to kind of reflect back on years of walking with God and seeing our lives play out. Maybe some of you feel like you've been in that place for a while now. Let's think about what a proper perspective would look like on all of the things that have happened in our life. Maybe in growth groups specifically this week, we can think about what ways, in what ways has your life been different or more difficult than you imagined? Are you able to see the good purpose of our good God in it all? And maybe you can't. Maybe you need your brothers and sisters in your growth group to help you to see some of God's good purposes even in the most difficult circumstances of your life. Maybe you thought once you got married, everything would be great. 
And then you realized, I'm not just leapfrogging from one thrill to the next. This is hard. Maybe you thought, I felt less lonely when I was single. Or when we, when we think about raising children and we look ahead and envision what that's going to be like, it's, it's playing ball with our kids and it's teaching them all these wonderful truths and everything's going to be great. And pretty quickly you realize most of parenting happens in days that don't go exactly according to plan, right? And that only increases exponentially the more children you have. <laughs> Just saying... Or what about work? Do you have the job that you always knew that you would have? Or do you look back and say, I have no idea how I got here. Is that good? Or is that tough? Tough to process. What about church? Church can be wonderful. And church can be wonderfully disappointing. Friendships, probably the source of more blessing and pain than just about any other institution. What about just emotional stability? What about maturity in general? Are you pretty much the person that you thought you would be at this point? Or do you look at yourself and look in the mirror and say, when did my growth get stunted? Or what about holiness? It's not a category that we tend to think of with great regularity, but, but when you look in the mirror, do you see a person increasing in holiness? Looking more like Jesus than you did a year ago? Or do you just feel frustrated because your battles against sin are just exhausting? Whether it's premature death or the loss of your retirement traumatic experiences or profound disappointment from from broken relationships to the longing to want to be in relationship seeing god's good purpose in our lives begins with understanding what is actually good from god's perspective as we think about everything that happens in our lives what does god see as good. What is good to God is that our character is conformed into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. What is good to God is that we come to trust Him in and through everything we face in this world, Proverbs 3 and verse 5. What is good to God is that we come to understand that He is enough to satisfy us when we have nothing. And he is more satisfying than anything, even when we have everything. Psalm 63, verse 5. What is good to God is that his, 
His glorious beauty and power and majesty, his grace and his justice, his provision and peace and friendship and wisdom and worth would be reflected in his people. Well, why is that good? John 17, so that the people of the world can see that there is more to life under the sun than what we behold in this kind of fantastic but also very fragmented world. God may protect us from from having too much, and God may remove good things from us. But when he does difficult things in our lives, we know, Romans 8, 28, Genesis 50, 20, when he does difficult things in our lives, we know he is working all things together for good for those who love him. Even though sometimes that's really painful. Now, there's plenty of disappointment when our dreams are dashed. But Solomon's main point in verses 3 through 6 is that even when life is abundantly blessed, we can still struggle to enjoy it. And if this describes you, Solomon feels your pain. In fact, he uses multiple stark Examples to accentuate how how devastating that pain actually feels. He says a man could have a hundred children and live a long life, yet not be satisfied with life's good things. And then he says, a stillborn child who never sees the light of day would be better off than this man because at least the child has found rest. The man with everything is still straining and striving and longing. He feels the hollowness of it all and he can't make it stop. He can't find rest for his soul. As we process through this, if you you want to pray, let me just remind you that we come up immediately as soon as I'm done and we'll, we'll pray and ask the Lord to shine the light of his word and the glory of the gospel into your situation so that you might be able to see what it is that he wants you to see. It's a painful image, but it's a profound point. In verses 7 through 9, Solomon makes statements and he asks multiple questions, but, but he's really just kind of drawing out one particular point. There's no end in sight for the insatiable desires of man. You work for food and eat. And you get hungry again. This is true for the wise man. 
it's true for the fool. Further, he says there's no way to get a handle on things or even to get ahead. He says, where does it get a poor man who is adept at dealing with others? He's saying basically nowhere. He's still poor. The whole thing is just hevel, just frustratingly futile to Solomon. Desire is like a husband or a wife who is not content with the home life that is right before his eyes. This person constantly wanders off looking for something more. These are all examples of the, of the frustrating nature of life under the sun. All of this longing. So little lasting satisfaction. All of it is a striving after the wind. But if this is an accurate description of how it feels, then it can somewhat leave us deflated. And we might ask, well, if this is true, then where does that leave us? By the grace of God, it leaves us squarely in the crosshairs of the only one who can help us. And this is exactly where Solomon points us, but he does it in his own kind of wisdom literature, follow the trajectory of my thought kind of way. Verses 10 through 12. Consider where God subtly shows up in these verses. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is not known what man is. I'm sorry, it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The first place that it leaves us is to deal with reality as it is. Not reality as we wish it to be. Not the life that I could have, would have, should have had. But the life and the circumstances that define the reality of it as it is. Beginning in verse 10, Solomon assesses mankind and says, look, things are the way they are. Man's heart's been like this for a very long time. So... Don't bother arguing with God. It's not going to change anything. He's the one who made us, and he already knows this. God is the one in our passage who is stronger than man. And God is wiser than man. God is not interested in negotiating any of these things with us. Because he is ultimately the one who knows what is good, even when we can't see it. But we need to go to him so that we might learn to live in the reality of our lives. 
the more a person argues with God, verse 11, the more pointless his words seem because, obvious point, God is the greatest debater of all time. Just ask Job. All these questions and all these friends helping and all these thoughts. And at the end of it, God says, Job, stand up. I want to talk to you like a man. Here's what's true. Job said, you're right. Good answer. If there was a high school debate team in Nazareth, guaranteed Jesus would have been captain, right? (laughs) There's no way to win a debate with someone who's omniscient. Not only does God alone know what is good for us in this world, under the sun, He is the only one who knows what lies ahead of us in the world to come, verse 12. Think about even very practical things. Imagine your child is on the free throw line to win the game or to lose the game. Your child's standing at home plate and they strike out and lose or they get a hit and they win. How do you pray for your child in that circumstance? Win? Lose? I think the right way to pray for them is, Lord, whatever would be best for my child's soul from an eternal perspective, let that come to pass. And the truth of the matter is, we don't know what the answer to that is. Of course, we're going to ask the Lord to help our child to do excellently for his glory, which in our mind means get a hit, right? Or make the shot. But do we really know if that's what's best in that moment for our child? These things are not so easily determined. The reason we know that Solomon is not despairing, despite the starkness of his language, is because of where he directs us. In these few verses here at the end of the passage, and then, of course, at the end of the book, when he very explicitly points us directly to God. He knows that the answers to life's longings for what is good is found in the only one who is ultimately good. But the reality is, at this point, when Ecclesiastes was written, what he could have only seen in a mirror very, very dimly is that the answer to every longing, the solution to every act of unrighteousness and evil, the fulfiller of every promise of God was coming. He was on his way. As good as God's gifts are, they make pathetic and holy unsatisfying gods. That is, every gift except one. All satisfying and everlasting joy can be found in God's greatest gift, the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon himself was the son of a great king, and in his own way he foreshadowed the coming of this greater son. In every place, that Solomon in Ecclesiastes reveals futility. In every place that he shows longing, Jesus has reconciled and fulfilled them on Calvary's cross. 
The gracious love of God is put on full display when he forgives us for selfishly and sinfully worshiping his gifts rather than him. But the miracle of the gospel is that the only truly good and all-satisfying reality in the universe, God himself eternally shares the fullness of who he is with his perfect son. And in turn, this glorious son shares his goodness with us, exchanging it for our ungoodness by faith. Through his blood sacrifice, the gift of the goodness of Jesus absolves us of the guilt of our sin in this life and fills us with a righteousness so pure that it also frees us to rejoice in the world to come. Therefore, before the very throne of God, we are now blameless because of the good gift of God's only begotten Son. Brothers and sisters, may this truth fuel our worship now, and it may it fuel our worship forever and ever and ever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are... not even really able to figure out what is good in our lives. Father, some things are so hard. We wonder if, if any good, anything redemptive could even come out of it. But if through these circumstances, you have taught us to trust you more and to love you more and to see in contrast to the difficult and sometimes disgusting details of our lives, if in contrast we can see and long for and desire all the more your surpassing goodness and beauty and glory and majesty, then one day we will know absolutely Though difficult, this was good. So would you cause us now to rejoice because of who Jesus is and because of what he has accomplished for us. And we ask this through the power of the Spirit in his name. Amen.